Have you heard the phrase that leaders are made and not born? Lumino Global is an international leadership coaching and consulting firm dedicated to helping you grow and reach your full potential as a leader. Lumino believes that leadership development is critical to every mission and every organization. Have you plateaued in your personal or professional growth? Or maybe you have a huge project that you're just trying to figure out where to get started. Coaching is a great way to learn and grow in a highly personalized and confidential environment for personal development. You don't wanna miss this opportunity to walk through life with your own coach. You can meet the team of Christian coaches and learn more about careers, ministries, or executive coaching at lumino-global.com. Anchored Hope provides practical help to those hurting by anchoring their hope in Jesus and helping others gain a better understanding of his promises. We offer reputable biblical counsel to those suffering or experiencing difficult seasons. Our counselors are highly trained and bring a vast experience in addressing the various issues of life. To meet with a counselor, visit anchoredhope.co to find a counselor that fits your needs and schedule an appointment today. Today on This Versus That, we have Dr. Curtis Solomon, who is a great friend to Anchored Hope, but also the executive director of the Biblical Counseling Coalition. Curtis is on faculty at Boys College. He's written numerous books, including I Have PTSD, Reorienting After Trauma. This was a fascinating conversation. Today, we talk about PTSD versus just stress. This is a great conversation for anybody to listen to. I learned a lot from Curtis here. We hope you enjoy it. Curtis, well, I am really excited about this topic because I think it's very applicable to so many people right now and really just in conversations people are having. I think this comes up a lot and I think that because it's coming up so much, there are a ton of questions surrounding it. You just wrote a book on PTSD. I want to start off just mentioning that because I am about halfway through it and I'm walking down the streets of New York City reading about PTSD and I've chuckled a couple of times because a couple of different I've almost gotten hit by a car a couple of times and <laughs> done a couple of maneuvers. And I keep thinking I should text Curtis and show him that his PTSD book is actually literally in the moment helping me. But I have really enjoyed, I think it's really helpful. It's very practical. But tell us a little bit about why you wrote that book. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me on the on the podcast. It's a, always a pleasure to hang out with you guys and talk. My appreciation and interest in PTSD really started when I was working for the Department of Veterans Affairs. I had served in the military, I had military family members, and I didn't even think about it until much later, but I had actually experienced trauma in a few different ways in my upbringing, but I didn't think about it related to me. But when I was working at the VA, I saw all these brothers and sisters in arms coming out of the military with significant problems, including post-traumatic stress. That was not the only one, but that was a big one. And I had studied biblical counseling in my undergrad and, and in my seminary time. And I, and I just knew there was hope. There was some kind of answer that included Jesus and his word. But that was unavailable to these people who are coming out, having gone overseas and laid their lives on the line in order to protect our nation and, and the interest of our nations and fight for our freedom. And they could not get the key answers that they needed to to get the help that they needed in the VA at the time. And it's still, I think they're probably a little better, but it's still very much just kind of the shotgun approach. We have no idea what is going to fix this. We actually don't think we can fix it, but we're just going to try everything we can. And it, people are doing yoga and peyote and all kinds of psychedelics is coming back in, in vogue with that. And I just was burdened that we needed, these people needed Christ and the Bible but then when I looked at the literature in biblical counseling at the time, there was nothing from a biblical counseling perspective. Since then, a few, many books came out. The a colleague wrote a book for the family related to post-traumatic stress, but there was still nothing really to give to the person that was a little bit more than, than a mini book. So that actually led me to do my PhD studies in post-traumatic stress disorder. So I have a dissertation out there. It's not as easy or fun to read as this, this book, but the publisher, New Growth Press, approached me a couple of years ago and said, hey, we're re we really would like a practical, could be something we could put in the hands of somebody who's struggling with post-traumatic stress and walk with them for 10 to 12 weeks 
knowing that probably a counselor or somebody is going to be the one reading it and guiding them through that. So can you do that? And it, my initial thought was, no way. Like, <laughs> I can't pile, compress all of this into, into 10 weeks and make it palatable to the person who's going to who's struggling, but also a guide in a sense, a counseling guide. But the Lord was gracious and put a lot of work into it. And the editors and my wife and New Growth did a lot to really polish it up to make it make it what it is. And it came out Labor Day um, this year, and I'm really excited and been getting some good feedback. So thank you. Yeah, I love it when resources that are not that we don't already have are being written. And I think particularly for somebody somebody who has actual experience with it, I really really appreciate that. So. There are some topics that we see books come out on all of the time, and I'm sure there are good things in that. But to have something that isn't readily available, that isn't already written, it's such a gift. So thank you for doing that. Well, it's my pleasure. And Lord willing, I'll be able to put out some more on it. I would love to do more of a counseling manual on how to do it for the counselors, but really helping the people who are struggling is the primary need. So glad glad to get it out there. Go ahead, Brian. When we have counseling terminology that becomes kind of pervasive in our culture, which really a lot of counseling terminology is pervasive. You just go on Instagram and you see it everywhere. Sometimes definitions get lost or they get muddied as we throw these terms around. So in light of that, just how would you define PTSD? What are some things we need to think through to define that carefully, wisely? Yeah, that's a great question. And you're exactly right that it gets diluted and confused and ends up becoming meaningless when it's everywhere and you misused and overused all the time. And I think that's happening both with PTSD and with the, just the term trauma. So PTSD, I'll discuss what I talk about as the diagnosis that somebody will have. And then in my book, you'll see I drop the D and talk about post-traumatic stress. Because I think what's happening is there is a real phenomenon. There is a real experience that people have been through extreme suffering experience in their lives. And we're trying to describe what is that. But for somebody who has a diagnosis of PTSD, there are a few things that have to exist in their life. First of all, they have to have been exposed to at least one, if not, and sometimes multiple, what are defined as are called potentially traumatic events. And uh, the DSM, which is the, the manual that is used to, for psychiatrists and psychologists to provide, and therapists to provide a diagnosis, actually limits what is a potentially traumatic event uh, to some very specific things. Those things that threaten or actually do cause loss of life, uh, severe bodily harm, so we think life, limb, and then uh, sexual integrity, uh, somebody who's raped or violated in some way, shape, or form sexually. And that can happen either directly to you, you can watch it happen to somebody else, or they even will, will count it as a potentially traumatic event if you learn about it happening to a loved one. So if somebody called me right now and said, hey, Jenny was just hit by a bus and she's dead, then and we're obviously praying that doesn't happen, but that would be considered a potentially traumatic event. So you have to have that. That's what's called a criterion A stressor, or criterion A potentially traumatic event. And then somebody has to develop a, a, a number of different types of symptoms. And those symptoms are clustered into four main groups. One is intrusive symptoms. And those are things like we think of flashbacks, intrusive memories, things along those lines. Avoidance symptoms, which is when somebody is trying to do everything that they possibly can to avoid thinking about the traumatic experience or having anything that reminds them of the traumatic experience or anything that might trigger that threat response system that, is, that has been really damaged in the traumatic experience. The third is a negative alterations in cognition or mood. So this is difficulty thinking, concentrating, or, and also includes just negative outlook on life. So seeing everyone or everything is, is bad, as negative as, as terrible. Those are all kind of lumped together. Also the idea of losing interest in things that you used to love. That's a negative alteration. And then the fourth cluster is alterations in arousal and reactivity. This is what we often portray, see portrayed in movies as the, the hypervigilance or somebody start, you know, being easily startled, you know, diving on the floor when they hear a, a car backfire or something along those lines. And, and all of those four, when you it's, we'll talk about this some more. They're, they're really, 
severe those types of things. It's not just having a bad memory, being reminded of bad memory. It's like being reminded of a bad memory and then you mentally are transported back into the place where that trauma was happening, even though your body is physically here. And sometimes that looks like somebody just blanking out. Other times it looks like them physically responding as though they're living out that moment there or even to the extreme dissociative experience of passing out. So it's not just, and this is where some of the confusion comes is, yeah, if you, if you go through suffering and all suffering is significant and something reminds you of that suffering, you're probably going to have a painful memory. Your body might even start to respond in a particular way, or you might want to avoid people or situations that remind you of that hardship, but it, it's not going to impact your life in a way that a traumatic experience does and a traumatic response. And then lastly, so you have those four clusters, then those symptoms have to last longer than a month and interfere with life. And if somebody has that kind of experience after going through a potential traumatic event, they can receive a diagnosis of PTSD. If somebody is actually manifesting those types of symptoms without the potentially traumatic event, the secular world will diagnose them with a completely different diagnosis and it's called adjustment disorder. The idea that somebody has not built up or learned the normal adjustment. We talk about adaption or maladaption or adjustment. They have not developed the normal capacity to handle normal suffering. And that's a completely different thing. And I think that actually points to when people are claiming these tra being traumatized by things that are, that don't rise to the level of those potentially traumatic events. I'm not saying they have a disorder or don't have a disorder. What I'm saying is, that that distinction, even in the secular therapeutic world, should help us see, no, there's a, there is a difference. And we want to make sure we are preserving these terms and understanding them accurately. And I think it's an act of love to those people who've been, been through that. So kind of the diagnosis of PTSD. Charlie Hodges and I worked together for a while to kind of come up with an alternative definition or alternative description, really more than a definition of, of what we like to call post-traumatic stress, which is dropping the D off of PTSD. And we, we do that largely because we want people to understand, this is the key phrase, post-traumatic stress is not an abnormal response to normal life. It is a very common response to extreme suffering or the extreme issues of, of life. So that's why we drop the D. It's also very helpful for people who are experiencing this to realize I've, they feel broken. They feel disordered. It can rob hope when they're told you have a disorder and there's no cure for it. And when we remove the D, it kind of helps deal with that. So that's kind of why we have an alternative description. And, and here's what it is. Post-traumatic stress is a whole person response to traumatic events that encompasses the physical, mental, emotional, behavioral, and spiritual being of those affected. It often results in significant disruption to social relationships, including home, work, school, and church. And it draws on our emotions of anger, fear, sadness, uh, concept of shame and guilt to disrupt family relationships, friendships, careers, and Christian service. Those affected will often compensate in ways that may compound the struggle they face. But when addressed in a God-honoring way, it can be a tool in the hands of God for great good helping the individual to become more like Christ and equipping them for greater service in the kingdom of God. And I really wanted, as we describe this, to have that, that hopeful end to it. Because one, it's biblical. You look at James chapter one, Romans chapter five, Romans eight, lots of different places. We know that all things in, in, in God's hands are used by him with, with grief, with pain, with suffering, with affliction to, to, do good for us. And the world has a concept that they call post-traumatic growth, that they actually believe people can be better after their trauma because of things that they learn, ways in which they're grown or changed. But we have a, a theological, a biblical, a God-given reason for understanding that. And so I, I like to call it post-traumatic sanctification rather than just post-traumatic growth. So There's so much there that I'm not even sure what to ask you. <laughs> I talked for a while. Sorry. Yeah. No, it's okay. I am a, I am a, a, a slow processor, but I'm fascinated by so much of what you just said. I think, I do believe that anxiety is on the rise. 
in mm. our Western culture. I don't know if it's just because of the nature of our work and what we do. So we hear about it a lot more than what would be normal. But the more I talk to people, the more and, it, you know, there's a climate in which there seems to be more and more suffering and more and more stress. And possibly because, you know, with social media, we know more things. We hear more things. We're aware of more things. And so there are, I don't know that we were made to take on this amount of stress of knowing this amount of information from all over the world all at one time. And as someone who lives in New York City and I'm constantly faced with all of these things for my kids, for myself, for my church, for our work. I do think that there's a rise of we weren't meant to take on this amount of stress as human beings. Yep. How does this interact with PTS or or do you think this is just stress? So I think oftentimes, even when we see people respond to maybe the news or respond to a political figure or respond to maybe even just something in the local church, and there's this larger response then maybe what would it be normal if all of these other things weren't happening at the same time? Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, no, I, I, I'm feeling a little bit like what you're feeling. There's lots of things there that I would like to say. I, I will start with saying, and I, I want to lead with this and help people understand too, that I want all of us to be more compassionate and understand that all suffering is significant. There's no insignificant suffering. And God is, God cares about all suffering. And, and all suffering is worthy of attention and care. So when you think about Psalm 56, 8, where it talks about God counting our tears, right? And storing them up in a bottle and writing down in a book, those sufferings, like God cares about everybody's suffering. And then he, he thinks all the suffering is worthy of attention. He, Isaiah 63, 9 says that, that our savior is afflicted in our affliction, Anytime we are suffering, God is suffering there with us. And you look at Jesus and the example that he gave us in the New Testament on multiple occasions, he wept. And this isn't some stoic, you know, manly single tear rolling down the cheek. This is, as Hebrews 5 describes, loud crying and tears. So we just want to lead with that. God cares about whatever it is that you're hurting and whatever it is that you've lived through and whatever suffering you've experienced. So don't, don't ever hear us or hopefully... Unfortunately, there are people out there who are, who, who are minimizing suffering, but that's not what God does. That's not what we're about. And it's not what his word tells us to do. So I think what, what happens and on, and on the flip side of that is, is the fact that we do have this tendency to minimize suffering. And I think that might be one reason why people want to claim the title of trauma or PTSD is because they feel like if I don't have that label, and people won't listen to me. I can't talk about my suffering. Nobody will care. And it's actually because we haven't responded well to suffering and taught people how to suffer well, that I think people are driven to misuse and, and overuse the term trauma and try to take that on to themselves. I think there is in general more, maybe more suffering going on in this season than maybe like 10, 15 years ago. If you just think about in the world, all the stuff that's been going on, We've seen, and we haven't, I haven't done a study, like a solid empirical study, but as an anecdotal evidence, the students coming into college are coming in, more of them already in therapy, more of them already on medication, their brain, they're coming for counseling. We have a great ministry here on campus at Southern and Boys College that provides care for students uh, if they can't find it in their local church. And a couple of years ago, They'd have a few students, you know, throughout the semester, uh, I think a year or two ago, post pandemic, there was a wait list for students requesting counseling before the semester began. So I think we're seeing an uptick in people at least pursuing care and, and wrestling with this anxiety. And Hannah, I think you're exactly right. And I actually wrote a piece for the BCC that talked about the fact that I think social media tempts us to believe that we should take on the role of God's omniscience the presence and omnipotence. We are not designed to know everything that's going on in the world. And when we try to, it causes us anxiety because we are not supposed to be concerned about all of these other things. Jesus, when he said, not only does he say, don't think about all the suffering in the world, he says, don't think about this, your suffering tomorrow. He says, today has enough care of its own in your own life. So 
when we try to take on the mantle of God's omniscience and say we should be aware of every form of suffering that's going on in the world, that's that's crazy and it's impossible and it is causing us a lot of stress. Uh, the omnipotence piece, like I actually had this experience when uh, I was writing my dissertation. I was writing it over a day where there was a significant uh, news story in our world. I'm not going to highlight it because it it just saying it sometimes causes people some stress. <laughs> But I had shut down all of my devices and because I just needed to write. And I turned on my phone and I got bing, 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 you know, all these notifications. And my buddy, one of my best friends, he says, hey, did you know, did you see what was going on at this place? And I was like, what, what place? No, I don't know. And I immediately felt this like almost shame and anxiety. Like, why didn't I know? And, and what, like, I'm such a bad person. What What's going on? And then it hit me like, not only was I not there, so it, I couldn't not be there. I didn't need to know. And the third thing, the, the omnipotence piece, there was nothing I could actually do about it. I mean, I could, I could pray, which would be, is significant, but I have no power over that. So, but when we, not only the social media, but the pressure from other people on social media and almost this cultural expectation that you should know. And if you are a caring person, you will know about all the suffering that's going on in all people's lives and all the world. And yeah, you're, you're spot on. Like we can't do that. And it's going to cause this stress. My number one piece of counseling as far as quantity wise during the pandemic was just get off social media because people were, were amped up and stressed and dealing with all this stuff. And I said, just turn it off, get it off your phone. If you really want to check in with somebody, call them have a conversation. And, and I had a few people who did that and they came back and just said, man, that lifted a burden so much and just reduced my stress so significantly. And it's, so it's crazy. Like not only do we have the, the actual normal cares and stresses of the world, but we are voluntarily taking on everybody else's so much. So Hannah, uh, uh, Rebecca, I don't think you're misreading that at all. I think you nailed it. Yeah. It seems like the pressure is not only to know, but if you're, if you're on social media, sometimes the pressure is to tweet accordingly, right? And mm. comment and have a voice on these things, which creates another added layer of pressure. Yep. I, I remember as a pastor thinking through like, how do I, should I say something on social media about this and, and just spending way too much time overthinking what I would write. Mm. And then sometimes just saying it's best not to write, say anything, but you know, a, a lot of times, Curtis, as, as you're describing this, I think about how often the word trauma is used in various situations. And as counselors, we are dealing with people in the midst of their relational struggles. And a lot of times people will come to us with what they describe as relational trauma. Mm-hmm. And so I guess this would be a kind of a two-part question. One is how important is it for us to help those counselees define their terms? And secondly, um, are there cases where even maybe there hasn't been a cataclysmic event, but there is such a horrific pattern in a relationship um, that just endures year after year that that would be something we would describe as? Yeah, no, those are those are really great questions. I had a conversation with somebody yesterday who's uh, a leader in in particular ways and in the in the in a ministry role, and he just said at, at lunch, he's like. Well, everybody has trauma and there is a part of me that was tempted to jump in and and have this conversation. (laughs) But in reality, like in most day in, day out conversations, when or even in counseling, when people come in and they're claiming to have trauma, I don't think it's necessary or even really wise or really loving to right away jump in and say, you know, you're wrong, right? First of all, you haven't, you haven't heard their story. And you need to listen to their whole story to really understand. I mean, I think I mentioned to you, I I did mention at the beginning of this podcast, like I had trauma in my past that I didn't, wasn't even really thinking of when I started writing and researching on this. You know, I was sexually abused as a, as a child. I had family members who committed suicide, sudden unexpected deaths of other people. And sometimes we just don't really even think about that. And so we might have an experience later in life that is very stressful. And there is this phenomenon where sometimes something happens midlife or at a later time and it brings up unbeknownst to us, some of the really significant 
really, uh, I did it right there, really severe suffering that we have experienced in our upbringing and in other seasons of life. And we have actually experienced trauma. So, because I've had people bring up the question of like, well, maybe some people just don't have the capacity of that kind of adjustment disorder question. And I asked him, I said, well, why is that? What, what happened in their upbringing that did not give them the tools to handle normal, suf- normal suffering? And oftentimes it's traumatic experiences. So I'm like, there you go. They do, they do have trauma in their past. You're just thinking you're not getting the big enough picture for it. Going back to the, the, the original question though. So I don't jump into that conversation right away. I take time to just listen. At some point after I built a relationship, they know I love them. They know I care about them. I might ask them, so what do you mean by trauma? Why, why, do, you, why do you use that term? And then talk to them about what, what I believe the definition of trauma should be and the fact that it's really loving to those people who have been through those most severe circumstances. And the conversation usually goes like this. So would you, would you agree that there are different degrees of suffering in the world? And most people are willing to say yes. Okay. Would you agree that those people who face things that threaten to end their lives or uh, do bodily harm or maybe sexual trauma or sexual violation, do you think that is a higher level of suffering than many of the other things that we experience in life? Yeah, most people are willing to say that. Do you think we should love those people in a, in a special way? Yes. Well, then I, I think one way we can do that is to preserve this term trauma to describe an experience that actually is unique to, to that kind of experience. So <clears throat> that's kind of how I go about the language thing. Again, not right away. Just wait for, make sure there's a relationship established there. Make sure I'm really clear that I care about all suffering. And they don't understand that. But then help them progress to that, to that understanding. When it comes to like conversations about relational trauma, emotional trauma, spiritual trauma, all those things, I think what people are getting at is they're, they're getting at what was the source of the suffering, right? And as we have gotten better at understanding these phenomena, we have broadened our understanding to realize like we used to always talk about it in relation to combat, right? Historically, the reason that is, is because you had large populations of people who are experiencing really severe traumatic experiences altogether. And you had this infrastructure in the United States of the the Department of Defense and the Department of VA working together to study this phenomenon. And they identified it. That's that's why in the, the original diagnosis, came out in 1980 on the heels of the Vietnam War. And you had this, this really influential doctor who was working with all these Vietnam veterans and came up with this, different, this diagnosis of PTSD. But if he actually wrote a book called Achilles in Vietnam, where he says, if you look at Homer's description of Achilles back in the Odyssey and the Iliad, what Achilles manifests is what we would today call PTSD. So he, he's highlighting that it's a historic event, not just a recent thing, but it's still in the context of military because he was working with military. But now we, we understand the traumatic experiences happen all the time everywhere. They happen in bedrooms. They happen in, on the roads on our way to, to work when somebody gets in a car accident. Natural disasters, you, first responders, EMTs, police officers, prison guards, moms at home with their kids, like everybody, trauma is not a military issue or a first responder issue. It is a life issue. I mean, just think about, go back to the very first family, right? You have mom and dad, they have two sons. What we don't, we aren't told in detail, but imagine what it would have been like to be Eve walking around and finding Abel on the ground dead. Like even one, you've never even seen human death. And the first time you see it, it's murder. And then to come to learn that it wasn't just an accident, it wasn't an animal, it was your own son. Like that is a traumatic experience. We don't know the impact that it had on Eve, but you surely, or, or Adam, whoever, or both, because they both learned about it eventually, but surely it had some impact. And that's, so it is a human issue that's been existing ever since the beginning. Why, why did Noah, as soon as he possibly could, get pass out drunk, Right. 
like one of those avoidance symptoms is using substances to numb ourselves from the experience of trauma. Noah was a godly man, a righteous man, spent a hundred years preaching, building this boat. And is in, after the, after the ark lands and he gets out, he makes sacrifice to God, still has a relationship with God. So Christians, godly people can struggle with this, but as soon as he possibly can, he ferments some grapes, drinks more than he can handle and passes out naked in a cave. Why? I would say he was probably traumatized by the entire world outside his family being wiped out. I mean, imagine being on the ark and hearing the screams of everybody around trying to get on and then the silence that follows. I mean, that's, that would be tra a traumatic experience, no doubt about it. So anyway, <laughs> uh, I went way off your question, I think. So bring me back in line. Did, what else did I miss in answering your question? I am completely fascinated by this conversation because, you know, part of this is about Christian lingo. And I think we Christians, not I don't know if I can even say Christians, that our world likes to hijack language to give value to experiences. And really what you're saying is all suffering matters. Yep. All suffering isn't necessarily the same experience. And there are varying degrees of that. And to understand that, we have to use different words to explain different kinds of experiences, right? Absolutely. You summarize it real fast. Yeah, like I, you're a I counselor. Mean, I, you know, that hearing you describe the arc and what it must, I've never thought about it in the context of him being stressed out because we look at that and think, well, what kind of dad passes out drunk, naked and has his sons take care of it? That's where we often land instead of thinking through what must have he experienced to want to do that after he obeyed God for all of those years to do this huge thing that was going to turn the entire history, you know, towards the coming of Jesus. You know, it just is yeah. like this. I've yep. never thought about that. So that's fascinating to me. Those realities don't come out in the mural in the Sunday school room, right? <laughs> yeah, the pastel paintings on the nursery wall don't Perfect. quite depict that. No, nor do they depict the, the, the existence of what the world was like before that happened, where all the thoughts of men's hearts were only evil always like that, that universal language over and over and over there in Genesis six, like you talk about trauma too, there, like just all, I mean, if you just removed law enforcement and just let people go with all their evil desires, like chaos, wickedness, harm, you just, uh, yeah. So I do want to talk about panic attacks and anxiety attacks and how those connect with PTS, because I think those as people, you know, for me personally, the older I get, the more I struggle with anxiety. I've never been an anxious person. I'm not by nature someone who has been, I have struggled with plenty of things. It's never been it. But the older I get and the more responsibility I take on, the more this is a serious thing in my own personal life, which is kind of alarming when you have counseled for decades, thousands of women through anxiety and different issues. And all of a sudden, here it is. And I'm, I'm dealing with that personally. But I want to talk a little bit about as we begin to experience those symptoms and the, the manifestation of anxiety. And again, there's a spectrum of maybe it's hard to sleep or, or maybe you get nervous all the way to those physiological manifestations of having a stroke or yeah. passing out. Yep. How did those kinds of experience, are they always connected with post-traumatic stress or are those something separate? I think, I think you have, there's a, I love Venn diagrams and I think there's a, there are people who will struggle with anxiety even to the point of panic attacks. And there are people who struggle with post-trauma and sometimes the people who are struggling with trauma have panic attacks, but not everybody who has a panic attack is dealing with trauma. So there's your Venn diagram you cannot see because this is an audio <laughs> platform. But what, yeah, I think what happens and I, uh, Becca, I'm right there with you. I was never, I was very, very, I still am pretty optimistic, happy, go lucky kind of guy. I never really struggled with anxiety at all. But I remember one day driving, it was right after I decided to take on the role of the, the executive director of the BCC. And I was driving home from, from the church where I was working at the time and I still remember exactly where I was and I just felt this pressure in my chest 
and like I couldn't breathe and I just, but, and thankfully I had worked with and counseled a number of people who did struggle with panic attacks. And I realized like it didn't get full blown, but I was, I was anxious and it was, I was sitting there thinking about, oh my gosh, what am I doing? I have to raise all this money. I'm moving my family across the country. Are we going to be able to make it? Is this the wise decision? All these things. And it's exactly what scripture tells us, right? When I'm, I'm Peter getting out of the boat and I'm initially like, yes, this is a great calling. I want to go serve Jesus. And then I start looking around at the storms of, uh, of life and I'm, I'm, I start to sink and praise the Lord. In that moment, I cried out to Jesus, just like, like Peter did and was able to regain composure, what I call a peace with God. Um, well, I think scripture does, but I, I, so in my book, I talk about developing a peace plan and this would be broadly applicable to anybody who's struggling with anxiety and panic attacks, but because panic attacks are a common uh, experience with somebody who's been through trauma, I wanted them to be equipped with how to do this, how to handle this. So the peace plan real, real simply is it's five steps. It's pray, recline, breathe, think, and call. And what I, what I mean by that is the first thing I want somebody to do when they start to feel anxious and recognize that they're getting escalated is to pray. And I don't mean like some big, long theological treatise of a prayer. I just mean, God help me, or even just a turning your attention to God. And that's where Romans 8 is so comforting. Romans 8, 25, where it says the spirit intercedes on our behalf with words. Groaning's too deep for words. People who are in panic mode, people who've been through trauma, that's where they are. There aren't words to, de to describe what's going on sometimes, and the Spirit intercedes on their behalf. So that's the first step, just pray. And then recline is simply sit down or lay down. Some panic attacks can escalate to the point of cardiovascular, you know, to cardiac arrest and or passing out. And we just want somebody to, to be safe and not hurt themselves if that happens. It also does counteract some of the physiological responses. And I think that's what I'm, I want people to understand is there is, there are physiological things going on here and you're not just doing laying down and breathing, which we'll talk about in a second, are not addressing anxiety. They're addressing the physiological responses of anxiety, uh, physiological manifestations of anxiety. I've listened to so many mindfulness things and, and, and other podcasts and other things like that, where people say, Oh, well, I just do meditation and breathing to counter my anxiety. I'm like, you're not actually dealing with the anxiety. <laughs> you are dealing with the, the negative, the really painful things of anxiety, but you're not dealing with the anxiety. So you have pray, recline. The next is breathe. And I just go over a real simple breathing techniques. There are other ones out there, but it's, it's called box breathing, something that they teach you in the military and lots of other places where you just breathe in real like slow, deep breath for four counts. Try to hold it for four counts, exhale for four counts, hold for four counts. And you just repeat that cycle like four times. And, and I encourage people to count it out on, you know, tapping their leg, other things like that, the, just again, to counteract, because what you're doing is your heart rate and your breathing are tied together. And when you're feeling anxious, your heart is racing and you're trying to slow down your heart. And, and counteract that component there. And then think, I, I ask people and I give them space in the book to come up with five simple truths. And this is, a lot of this is drawn from Philippians chapter four, kind of verses four through nine, where we are encouraged and what, what, why I call it a peace plan is that passage talks about in the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds. And it calls God the God of peace. And he helps people who are being anxious and encourage us to pray, to think about what is true, lovely, honorable, right, above reproach, all those things, and then to, to move forward in doing what he's called us to do. And thinking can, true, simple statements can help us counteract the inner man responses that are going on in anxiety. Like I, the example I gave, what am I doing? I'm moving my family. Am I going to be able to make it? I can say, counteract that with God is with me. God is in control. I don't have to be anxious about this right now. With trauma, I, I, I encourage people to include the God is with me. If they're believers, I'm not alone. And then a simple truth, like what I'm feeling right now or what I'm remembering right now is not actually happening right now. That's one of the things with, with PTS is that what the memory of the trauma feels like it's actually going on right now. And if you can simply tell yourself, no, it's not, 
and remind yourself, I'm here, I'm not there. And these are three to five really simple one phrase statements. You don't have to recite all of a psalm. You can if you want to, but just real simple truths about the situation. And then call. That's where you have allies in this fight. You should never do this alone. Uh, None of us should ever do anything in life alone, really, right? Like challenging things, taking on suffering and sin in our lives. We need other people. So I just ask him to have three to five people who are on a call list that you can reach out to at any point. And they don't, some of them will know, like I encourage them to be, if you're in counseling or if you have a counseling ally, those people be on your list. But then like three to five people who, they don't know all the ins and outs of your struggle, but they know that you have, you're struggling in this peace plan. And when you get them on the phone, you tell them, hey, help me, help me. And they're just going to either count your breathing for you. They're going to pray for you. They're going to remind you of those truths. They know this plan and they're just going to help you walk through it. And that's a, a super, I think, a very helpful tool to help people address immediately a panic attack or that kind of experience. So, Curtis, sometimes people who have been through trauma will respond to things in a very visceral and what feels like an irrational way to people around them. So whether that's walking into a room and immediately having a panic attack or smelling something that creates a, you know, flight or, you know, fight response, or, you know, it can be any number of things, or sometimes in a discussion with a spouse where something will come up and that person will respond in a very visceral way. And the, the person on the other side of that says like, why are you doing this? Like that has no connection Mm -hmm. to what I just said. How speak for two moments or speak for a moment to the caregivers, those who want to walk faithfully with those who've been through trauma, how they can prepare for those moments and to love people well when they experience that. Yeah, you said the thing and it seems irrational. And the reality is if you step back, and this is where I, I, I want to reiterate, this is a common response to extreme suffering, not an abnormal response to normal life. Because what would be irrational is if this person had never been through severe suffering and they responded that way, that's like, dude, you're kind of crazy. But when you step back and you understand and you see the history and the, and the, so when, when somebody has been held hostage by someone who's supposed to be a loved one, they've been trapped in a room for years, sometimes on end and just brutalized, mistreated, misused. And that person gets really upset when they go into your room and you close the door. That's not irrational. That's a really justified, like reasonable response based on their history. So helping people, the caregivers understand this might just recognize when something seems overreacted that it might not be, and it might be tied to their trauma. And again, we have to really get to know people and understand and understand them, get to know them and help them also get to know themselves. And what, what are the things we call We use the phrase triggers. I, I wish there was a different term, but that it makes sense. That's what we use. So when people get triggered, like, what is it? Why, why is that happening? What's going on? And how can I love them in the midst of that? How can I help them understand that they're having this response? Because sometimes they don't recognize that they're, they're getting amped up, that they're getting triggered even when they are. So being patient, being understanding, being sympathetic, but not leaving them there. Like you can help, you can step in, you can help move them forward out of that and help them understand how to respond better. And I hope that this book will help people do that as they, as they're walking through that, but it really does for the caregiver and anybody around that person to just understand. And it doesn't excuse sin. It doesn't, we're not trying to say like you, you just let them keep on doing it. It doesn't matter what they do. It, it should build compassion in us. Right. So kind of going back to that comparison between quote unquote, normal suffering and then traumatic suffering. If, if, you know, Brian, next time we're at a conference together and you punch me in the face, if I, the next time I go uh, around somebody and they raise their arm and I flinch, that's not a traumatic response. That's a learned, reasonable response to try to protect myself, right? And that's one of the things too we didn't really get into, but the physiology of post-traumatic stress is 
post-traumatic stress affects and sometimes damages our threat response system, right? God designed us with this system to sense threats, assess threats, address threats, and then recover. And that, that's a good thing. So that when, yeah, I learned getting punched in the face hurts. The next time I think I might get punched in the face, I'm going to dodge or block or, or something that we don't think, oh, you, you were traumatized. We think, praise the Lord, your threat response system worked and you are responding more better. But when you go through series of significant suffering uh, or severe suffering or a really extreme example, that system can get overloaded, overwhelmed, or, or it malfunctions in a sense. But you can read, so that makes it un, more understandable that next time somebody raises my hand, if I curled up in a ball on the floor, that's probably because there's been more than just you punching me in the face one time, but I was repeatedly or, you know, experienced trauma in some, some capacity. But if you really understood that background, you wouldn't think, oh, that's, that's an overreaction. You think, oh, I get it. That makes sense to me why you would respond that way, knowing what you've been through. And that's what we want to do is build compassion towards those people and, and then help them grow so that they don't have to, and they don't respond that way in the future. There are so many other places we could go with this. I think it, importantly, though, as we land the plan here in a minute, I want to turn the conversation to Jesus because we need to talk about hope. And if these are things that you are experiencing, then there is hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not the end of the story just to experience these kinds of uh, pain and, and suffering. So, you know, we read about Jesus all throughout Scripture enduring stress after stress. Obviously, we could talk about the Garden of Gethsemane with the immense kind of stress that he experienced there. What are some ways from Jesus that we can learn how to handle stress? Yeah, no, I think it's, it's a great, and that he is the, the template, the model that we're striving to become like and being, being shaped by him and by his spirit into. So we always want to go to Jesus and think, what would, not that we need to bring back the bracelets, but what would Jesus do, right? Like, what would his response be? How would he, how would he act and how can, what can I learn? So you do see Jesus, and I think Paul's Paul's description in Second Corinthians, where he talks about being overwhelmed but not crushed, right? That we are impacted, but we aren't. We don't have to be taken out of it. I, I use the phrase we don't want when I talk about resiliency. We don't want to be unaffected by the things that come into our lives, but we want to be rightly affected. So we can learn from Jesus a, a lot of things relating to trauma and to suffering. First of all is that he knows it's coming. He knows that, that what's gonna, you're going to face and he loves you and he's with you through it. We also see that God's mode of operation is to take wicked and evil and terrible things and make glorious, wonderful, beautiful things out of it. You see that in Joseph's life, right? And Joseph at the end of Genesis, he says to his brothers, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. When you take you move throughout scripture, you see that applied over and over and over again. And the penultimate is Jesus. The greatest evil, the greatest wicked, the greatest trauma that was ever, ever, ever inflicted by one human being or uh, human beings onto one human being was the cross. And it, it affected Jesus. We saw, you talked about that, seeing that in Gethsemane. You read the language that describes his response in the, in the Gospels and then in Hebrews, it talks about this loud crying in tears, this, this intense tension in him that was so severe that his blood vessels ruptured and blood oozed out of his pores. Like that's, some people don't want to call it anxiety, whatever you want to call it, it's severe and intense. And then he weeps, right? So we want to help people understand like, you should not expect that when you suffer to be unimpacted by it, unaffected, to not grieve, like you should grieve. And what is, you know, Hebrews tells us he would, he cried out to his father. We see him crying out to his father. We see that in, again, in, in first John or first Peter, where it says that he kept entrusting himself to his father. Right. And that's what we can, one of the things we learn from is we, we don't expect to be unaffected we expect to be rightly affected and we should follow his lead and going to our father, cast all your cares on me, knowing that I care for you, right? People sometimes, and this bleeds over just into general suffering. Sometimes we as Christians 
can question somebody's faith in God, their trust, their doctrine, their understanding of God's sovereignty, all these stuff when they all this stuff when they are negatively impacted by suffering, you know, when they weep, when they cry, when they when they're still weeping over the anniversary of somebody's death years later, we're gonna be like, Don't you have faith? Don't you know that God is good? Don't you know that God loves you and he has a good purpose for you and he has a good purpose for those things in your life? I like to go to Hebrews five and say, Did Jesus know that God was going to work good through the cross? Did Jesus have good doctrine? Yeah. Did Jesus have faith? Yeah. But he still wept. He still begged and pleaded with his father that that the cross would not come. Right? So why why would we then put this pressure on other people and say, no, so we need to follow the, the example of Jesus. And that means weeping and crying out to God and laying our cares before him, sharing them with our brothers and sisters. I mean, Jesus in Gethsemane, Part of the pain there is that he's left alone. Like he didn't ask the disciples to come with him just to be, you know, decoration. He wanted companionship. Mm. He goes to them and he, you see this, this hurt in him, this anguish. Like, can't you even stay awake for an hour? Like, don't you guys see what I'm going through here? And I, I'm uh, hopefully not making Jesus sound pouty or anything, but he was grieving. He was hurt in that isolation, wanted friends to be with him in the, in the prayer. He wanted to go to his father. And then ultimately he did submit his will to the fathers and he did what God called him to do. Now, the other beautiful side of it is Jesus did that perfectly because he knows we can't do that perfect. So whenever we are suffering, whenever we, we, we do feel overwhelmed, we do have a panic attack. Jesus is there. He's our advocate before the father. He loves us. He's, he wants us to come to him and he wants to wrap his arms around us and he's not going to push us away in shame. That's right before that passage, you know, in Hebrews chapter four, he says, I get your weaknesses because I, I, I lived it. And he doesn't say, go away from me. He says, draw near to me in your times of need. Not when you got it all figured out. Not like, oh, you know, go deal with those panic attacks, talk to your therapist, get it straightened out, and then come talk to me. He says, draw near to me in the midst of the worst of the worst of the worst. Come near to me and I'm not going to turn you away. I'm not going to be ashamed of you. I'm not going to look down on you because you couldn't handle this, this, the, this quote unquote minimal suffering in comparison to mine. He says, no, come near, draw near, draw near to me. And what we see in in the life of Jesus and then portrayed for us. And, and I don't take people this right away who've been through trauma, but we do go there eventually is I can't, because the big question they'll ask is why, right? And we can't answer all the reasons why. And I tell people, I, I don't know all the reasons why, but I do know that at least three reasons why God allowed this suffering to come into your life. One is that it will transform you. It can make you more like Jesus. And I will take time and specifically think about ways that they're more like Jesus with them. One of the first ones is often like he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with much grief. And if you weep more now after this, because you understand suffering, you're actually more like Jesus. The weeping is not a sign of necessarily a sign of lack of faith. It could be a sign of growth in faith and growth in understanding. The second is that God will use this for in your life to help other people. And you do go to second Corinthians chapter one, right? The God of comfort comforts our affliction. So we're able to comfort anyone in any affliction. And man, when you've gone through trauma, you've got a lot of opportunity to speak into people's lives that you never would have without that. I've had that multiple times in my own counseling ministry where somebody puts on a form like abuse, but they don't want to explain, expound. Right. And I'm like, stop, man, I'm really sorry you went through that. We do not have to talk about it, but I want you to know that I was abused as a child and you can, you can, I don't know. I'm not saying I understand what you're going through, but if you ever do want to talk about that, happy to. And weeks later, they'll come back and be like, let's talk about it. And I, and, and say specifically, I never would have told you this except for what you shared. That's a second really in chapter one, right? And then being able to take comfort there. And then the last is that it does glorify God, right? You think about Guys, when we go shopping for diamonds for our wives' engagement rings, the jeweler doesn't lay out the diamonds on a, on a white table, right? He sticks them on a black cloth and he shines a light on them. 
because the beauty has to have the black background to shine through. And when our, the darker the suffering we've gone through, the more glorious, the more beautiful, and the more brightly Jesus shines through us because of that. Yeah. You know, and we, we could go on First Peter chapter 3, right, 15. That is the reason we are able to oftentimes give people, point them to the gospel and give them hope is because they see the darkness in our lives, and they, but they see this brightness shining through and they, they don't get it. They want to understand how can you still look like, like how, how are diamonds still shining through when your whole life looks like tar? That's because of Jesus and it's, it's beautiful. So that's such a good word. I feel like we just got a free counseling session. I can send you a bill if you want. <laughs> yeah. Well, praise the Lord. It is, it is all his, his word and his word. Yeah. I think in that chapter, that same chapter where Jesus is entrusting himself to the father as an example to us and I'm pretty sure it's furthered in that chapter where it's talking about Sarah and Abraham and it's talking about if you are her daughters, you do not fear anything that's frightening. He Mm -hmm. does the same thing in Psalm 46 when he's talking about put your trust in God. He's our refuge. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. There is a there's a recognition that there is something frightening, that the earth does, in fact, give way. But we have a God who tells us not to fear because ultimately he is in control of all things. And the hope isn't that that suffering's not happening. The hope is that we still have God in the midst of our suffering. Amen. And so often, I think too, I have experienced some of this in, in some specific scenarios, but I think understanding that this is exactly what Jesus died for. <laughs> this is in that moment. And I found that particularly with people who are struggling with this immense kind of anxiety in that moment, if you can wrap your brain around, this is what Jesus died for, this panic attack, this anxiety attack, this moment of stress, this moment of fear, this is why he was actually put on the cross in the first place so that he can actually be that perfect mediator and get the help that we need in our time of need. So I, I have loved this conversation. I think it's very, it's a very, applicable conversation right now. I think it will continue to be. And so I'm super grateful, Curtis, that you lended all of your information. Everyone should go read the book now because I think there's so much more in the book too. You, One of the things you talked about that we didn't get into and we can't is the reorienting of your past to present and future, which I think is helpful. And so that's in there as well. So here's my plug. And this is my resource for today's episode is Curtis's book. <laughs> Are there any other resources Brian or Curtis that you want to point to? Man, I'll just, I'll shout out for those who are military, military veterans or first responders. There's a fantastic ministry. I serve on their advisory board. It's called the Mighty Oaks Foundation and you can find their website, the Mighty Oaks Warrior Programs.org. If you find yourself struggling in this, in this way, they will pay for you to fly to the program, put you up for a week, feed you amazing food, house you in really great things and just minister to you. And I've seen Massive, massive life change in people having gone through that. And it's such just a generous ministry. So I encourage you to check that out if you're listening to this and you're struggling and you happen to have one of those backgrounds, or if you're the spouse of somebody in those backgrounds, your spouse has to go through first, but then there's also a program for you to go through as well. I'd love to shout out for that. And then obviously the BCC's website, we have thousands of free resources on there for people about all kinds of topics, not just this one. So go to that website, biblicalcc.org, click on the resources button and just see an alphabetized listing of all the problems that you run into in life and some free resources there to help you with that. Awesome. Brian? In terms of just general anxiety, we were talking earlier about our mutual friend Ed Welch. He's written a great book called Running Scared that I think is an amazing resource for thinking biblically about how to respond to anxiety. And then I would just say, we didn't get into this either, but... Biblical counseling can be a massive help to someone who is uh, struggling, whether that's just suffering that is significant and um, anxiety and stress, or whether that is uh, trauma that that person has walked through and needs a place to to process that and think through how how does the Lord draw near to me in the midst of this? And so I would encourage them, whether that's Anchored Hope or another counseling resource to, to really begin that process. Awesome. Well, thanks, Curtis, for being here. We appreciate you. Thank you guys so much for the opportunity. It was a real 
delight and just a pleasure to be with you. You've been listening to This Versus That, a podcast of Anchored Hope Virtual Counseling. To learn more about this episode or our ministry at Anchored Hope, visit anchoredhope.co.